Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 89 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a review of the Justice Department's new corporate compliance program guidance. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Before we get started, two points. First, please like and subscribe our, to our podcast and rate the podcast and let other compliance professionals know about the podcast. Second, I wanted to mention that my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, provides ethics and compliance program services, including program design and implementation, assessments, audits, testing, and integration planning uh, for uh, global companies. We have extensive experience in this area and are frequently retained for our reputation of providing practical and targeted solutions that advance compliance needs, promote an ethical culture, and support business operations. If interested in our services in this area, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Well, we had a major development in uh, ethics and compliance program expectations. Uh, The Justice Department issued its new and important uh, revised guidance on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Uh, It was the new evaluation guidance supersedes the prior document that was issued in February 2017, which contained a lengthy list of questions uh, on key topic areas related to compliance programs. The headline from this new guidance is significant. Uh, The Justice Department has advanced the ball uh, yet again, uh, you know, using whatever analogy uh, fits the bill. Uh, But the evaluation guidance is a major document that brings together some significant trends in the compliance area and places the DOJ stamp on these trends. Um, The new evaluation guidance was issued on the same day as Brian Benchkowski delivered a speech on the topic at the recent Ethics and Compliance Initiative meeting in Dallas, Texas, and I happened to be there. And as noted by uh, Brian, there are three fundamental questions now a prosecutor should ask in evaluating a company's compliance program. First, is the program well-designed? Second, is the program effectively implemented? And third, does the compliance program actually work in practice? Now, Benchkowski explained that the updated evaluation guidance uses these questions as a framework to categorize the topics that the department has frequently found relevant in evaluating a corporate compliance program. And it also provides guidance from other department and enforcement documents, bringing everything together. Uh, Benchkowski concluded with uh, an interesting comment. Compliance, he said, is a fast-moving field and one in which evolving technologies and globalization of economies and enforcement can provide both challenges and solutions. So now let's dig a little bit deeper here. The evaluation guidance is broken down with the within those three questions noted above and with some overlapping discussions. But in general, the topics are are the standard ones, risk assessment, policies and procedures, training and communications, confidential reporting, investigation process, third-party management, mergers and acquisition. Uh, And I'm not going to go through all of them uh, right now, but the evaluation guidance contains a number of new topics Uh, and specific questions that sort of uh, supplement earlier questions and earlier topics. Uh, And I think the the 
I could, would break them down into several areas. One would be we need to take a fresh look at risk assessments and the expectations. Um, also, a new entrant here, which you'll be uh, not surprised to hear about, but corporate culture and ethics and greater focus on uh, internal investigations. So in terms of not necessarily different questions, but revised questions that are subsumed within this, but, uh, and I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more in terms of what the impact of this is. Um, one thing, just to make clarify a few points here. One is that the FCPA guidance, which was issued in November 12, 2012, still stands, and it still stands, in my view, as the most important document um, uh, in terms of outlining specific issues, providing safe harbors, and giving a sense of uh, enforcement priorities and how they, the government looks at these types of cases. Another couple of important points. The new guidance applies to all corporate criminal cases except for one big one, the antitrust division and cartels and price fixing. That's still within the antitrust division, although there's still there's a move within the antitrust division to catch up with regard to their credit for uh, corporate compliance programs and how they evaluate it. But the new guidance does not just apply to FCPA cases. It also applies, most importantly, to healthcare fraud cases. So cases against healthcare systems, pharmaceuticals uh, for companies, medical device companies, uh, healthcare providers of one sort or another, it applies to all of them as well. Uh, and, and obviously, corporate fraud type of cases, let's say, for example, involving automobile safety, uh, the General Motors case, the Volkswagen case, Takata, uh, those types of cases, the, this guidance will apply. It comes from the criminal division. It still will have applicability because it's in the justice manual to all the U.S. attorney's offices, but the antitrust division is definitely uh, not included in part of that because of the leniency program uh, that they run. So what's the importance of this really? Well, one, it gives you an outline for self-assessment and uh, of your own program, and also how do you design your own program and what are important issues. It provides safe harbors for compliance program determinations. Um, and once you add that with DOJ and SEC statements or from U.S. Attorney's Office's statements, um, it also gives you, uh, to the practitioners like myself, the ability to make certain arguments to the government. Well, you said this about policy. We did this about our policies, and therefore, um, it, uh, we fell within the guidance, and you, shouldn't, you, know, you should give us credit for that. Um, but the bottom line here is that expectations have risen, and uh, DOJ expects there to be more. Uh, not less in terms of compliance. Um, and one of the most important areas to me is the fact that we have affirmative statements versus questions. In other words, they've rewritten this into sort of here's what we expect, not the implication being from questions uh, asked that, hey, we'd like to see this, or we're going to ask you. We're not saying what your answer should be. Now they are telling you, here are affirmative statements, affirmative obligations that we expect you uh, to look at and to implement to the extent it applies. Uh, 
There also is more of a focus on compliance program structure with specific questions about that and how the CCO is structured within the company and the requirement that you document why you chose to design your program in a certain way. There's definitely a more robust discussion of sort of topics and granularity of uh, questions that need to be asked. And perhaps the other headline, as I mentioned earlier, is that culture and ethical culture is now part of the, the program guidance. Okay, so let's turn to a couple of very specific areas that I wanted to discuss, one being risk assessments uh, and policies and procedures. Let's start with those two. Um, and remember, I said, again, this is key to the three questions of the design of your program. Is it well designed? Is it uh, effectively implemented? And does it work? So uh, as we look at risk assessment, there's sort of a new and I think a little bit of a fresh perspective on before you can do anything in compliance, you need to assess your risks. Now, I know we've always talked about that. But here there's a, there seems to be more of a formality around the process and an obligation to um, update and periodically update your risk assessment and risk profile and therefore make changes. So the focus here is whether the company's uh, compliance program is designed for quote-unquote maximum effectiveness to prevent and detect wrongdoing. And the quote-unquote starting point for the evaluation is whether the company has identified, assessed, and defined its risk profile and the degree to which the program devotes appropriate scrutiny and resources to the spectrum of risks. So they also list several factors that should be looked at, a number of factors that should be looked at in terms of assessing your risk, which are all familiar to everybody, and I'm not going to bother by reading them right now. But they ask, the Justice Department will ask whether the company's risk assessment process is effective and then whether the program is tailored to the risk assessment and further, and this is, I think, how the risk criteria are periodically updated. So companies have to tailor its risk profile based on, let's say, lessons learned, be it where, wherever you learn your lessons from. So in outlining this important foundation, the Justice Department clearly expects companies to allocate resources, staff, technology, and time to high-risk activities versus lower-risk activities. And that obviously is a fundamental point, but let me give you an example of what DOJ would not want to see. Is an inordinate amount of time spent on gifts, meals, and entertainment versus high-risk transactions, high-risk third parties. What did you do about your those types of risks, and how did you allocate your time, attention, and resources in that second sense? Next, let's turn to policies and procedures. And here, obviously, we start with uh, the ultimate foundation, which is the uh, code of conduct. And DOJ, of course, uh, starts with that and uh, goes to say that that is the foundation for your policies and procedures, um, and uh, and the policies and procedures have to be basically have to incorporate the culture of compliance and incorporate that culture of compliance into your day to day operations. And DOJ uh, addresses specific policy and procedures categories, including design, 
Are your policies designed appropriately? Are they comprehensive? Do they cover all the areas? And are they accurate and up-to-date with regard to legal uh, violations? Uh, are they accessible in terms of foreign uh, language capabilities? Who's responsible for operational integration? And the importance of incorporating gatekeepers uh, into your policies and procedures. So, in other words, DOJ expects uh, companies to establish a management procedure for the design and implementation of new policies. In other words, you have to have a policy review procedure. And you want to have businesses included in the consultation process as a stakeholder so that uh, they are part of, let's say, the rollout and the design of these policies so that there's buy-in from the uh, business units and the business part as well. Uh, they obviously have to be uh, kept up to date in response to regulatory and legal changes. And you have to identify persons who are responsible for integrating these policies and procedures, promoting employee understanding, and reinforcing these policies and procedures through the company's internal controls. And we provide guidance and training and must to key gatekeepers in the control process, people who have approval authority, accounts payable people who pay money, or people who are certifying as to uh, your compliance program or aspects of it in any way. Okay, then we went, as we sort of moved down the list of uh, issues that the Justice Department uh, addressed, we also have some interesting comments made in the area of training and in communications. And here what we saw is that, um, again, we have the same concepts of training that of directors, officers, employees, managers, and where appropriate, your third parties, agents and business partners. Um, again, training has to be tailored to the audience's size, the sophistication, their responsibilities. And again, the approach is to focus on relevant control employees and supervisory employees with real-life scenarios uh, and a program that has to measure the effectiveness of the training program uh, as to whether people are learning it. With regard to uh, communications, one of the more significant issues that continues to arise is how does a company discipline, publicize their disciplinary actions, uh, make them anonymous to avoid privacy concerns? How do we also uh, offer accessible guidance and advice on complying with the company's ethics and compliance program? And does the company assess whether the employees know how to get guidance. In other words, who do they call for, for questions and who do they uh, deal with in those situations? I mentioned in the beginning that there's a little bit of a more robust discussion on investigations, and that's absolutely true. The, the company here is required under the guidance to establish an efficient and trusted mechanism for employee reporting of breaches or of the code or legal violations. Uh, and a new, new language on proactive measures to create a workplace atmosphere without fear of retaliation uh, for complaints and processes to protect whistleblowers. I guess because they're seeing more and more retaliation efforts that it's important that there be uh, similar uh, types of con uh, protections uh, or effective types of pr protections. 
Um, in your complaint system, it has to be routed to the proper personnel, assessed as to seriousness, resolved in a timely manner, and resulting in discipline where uh, required. Anonymous reporting is obviously a fundamental requirement these days, uh, at least that capability. Uh, compliance uh, function should have uh, full access to all reporting and investigations. As to internal investigations themselves, now there seems to be a greater scrutiny, at least, as to was the investigation properly scoped? Was it accurately assessed as to seriousness? Was it independently conducted? Was it properly documented? Was, it con was, it, was the investigator qualified and independent? And the function has to be uh, sufficiently funded. And then the lessons learned from these have to be used to update internal controls and compliance programs. And there's a requirement that complaints and investigations have to be tracked, analyzed, and uh, reported up the line. So these are some of the more uh, important issues. With regard to third-party management, interestingly, I, there was not much new in this area. Uh, it sort of uh, tracked, a, uh, there are now more affirmative statements, but it, the questioning in the topic areas sort of tracked the earlier guidance, and I thought that was interesting. Given the availability of technology and uh, automation, that there wouldn't be some sort of updating uh, in this area, and I was kind of surprised by that. So I don't intend to go through the third-party risk management area as much. Uh, it was really... Um, more or less a restatement of a lot of uh, prior statements, and obviously they've been saying a lot about that in enforcement actions. Same goes with mergers and acquisitions. I was surprised that the Justice Department did not update their thinking and their expression around this because their enforcement actions certainly have, as well as the FCPA corporate enforcement policy and the application of that to um, uh, mergers and acquisitions and successor liability. Um, uh, again, I didn't think, uh, and I've talked about this before in other podcasts about the sort of change in approach to mergers and acquisitions uh, from the 2008 Halliburton opinion uh, to the 2011-2012 uh, time frame uh, where we've seen sort of more focus on post-acquisition integration and on uh, audits and less on pre-acquisition due diligence, but yet uh, sort of some of the old language uh, sort of survived the process here. Um, I still think uh, it's good to inform yourself uh, on uh, the changes in the policy, uh, even though the guidance itself didn't incorporate those. So now we turn to uh, what I call the area of mumbo-jumbo, uh, or let's just say implementation, operation, operationalizing and effectiveness. And so here DOJ is continuing to push the envelope and demand greater compliance excellence. Um, and DOJ has seen firsthand, I think, how companies fail to dedicate adequate resources, train their middle managers, and ignore the occurrence of misconduct when internal audit discovers it. And I think um, they sort of tightened up a little bit some of the language here to make sure that paper that it's very, very clear about uh, what their expectations are. So let's start first with uh, senior management. And they have a section, obviously, commitment by senior and middle management. 
And they boldly stated, uh, and this is a new statement, that it is important for a company to create and foster a culture of ethics, and comp- ethics, which is a new lo- word, and compliance with the law. To this end, uh, DOJ specifically stated that, quote, the effectiveness of a compliance program requires a high-level commitment by company leadership to implement a culture of compliance from the top. And to underscore this point, the Justice Department is going to examine whether senior management has clearly articulated the company's ethical standards, conveyed and disseminated them in clear and unambiguous terms, and demonstrated rigorous adherence by example. Now, to me, what that means is words are great, uh, but uh, actions are more important than words. So actions and words must demonstrate top management's commitment to a culture of ethics and compliance. DOJ also stated that it's going to examine how middle management, in turn, has reinforced those standards and encouraged employees to abide by them. This gets at the issue where I've always made the point that it's your middle managers that are going to make the difference between compliance and non-compliance And when they engage in misconduct or they ignore the issue uh, in favor of business issues, then you're in for a world of hurt. So so DOJ is going to focus uh, if, let's say, middle managers tolerated greater compliance risks in pursuit of new business or greater revenues. And that's important. And whether they encouraged employees to act unethically to achieve business objectives or, and this is an interesting uh, uh, factor, impeded compliance personnel from carrying out their responsibilities. If they get in your way, uh, documentation of that is going to be critical and it's going to be incredibly uh, harmful to the evaluation process. So, uh, finally, the Justice Department guidance in this area reiterates the importance of compliance expertise on the board of directors and focuses on whether the board and or external auditors, now notice they added external auditors, have held private or executive sessions with compliance and control functions. Uh, And in this area, the Justice Department intends to review the information that the board and the senior management examine in their oversight of the compliance program. Now, turning to what I think is one of the more uh, important areas that the Justice Department addresses in the past and continue to do so here on autonomy and resources and the specific focus on the compliance staff's authority and stature in the organization, as well as a new line of inquiry, the structure of your compliance program. And they reiterated their focus on the the adequacy, the sufficiency of personnel and resources dedicated to the compliance program, including the seniority of the compliance staff in the organization, whether or not there's sufficient staff to audit, document, and analyze the compliance program functions, and whether the compliance staff has autonomy from management, such as direct access to the board or the board's audit committee. Now, they didn't get into prescribing what the exact structure should be, but more and more the factors that they look at here make it very important that there's adequate resources, independence, and authority of the uh, compliance function. 
And here, what uh, is really important in my mind is when they are looking at the sufficiency of the resources, they're asking whether or not that the compliance folks have the function itself has enough stature, but has enough resources in terms of people and technology uh, and other resources um, so that they can basically carry out uh, important compliance functions which are listed here in the guidance. Um, as to the issue of the structure of the program, the Justice Department is going to examine who does the CCO report to, whether it's a to reports to a business function, general counsel or CEO and or the board, and they're going to de determine if the compliance staff um, operates exclusively on compliance or has other obligations, and they want an explanation for why the company structured the compliance program a particular way. This is uh, this is what I, is a new area of inquiry, but I think one that was going on in their evaluation process, anyways. But at least they've captured it now in terms of a specific um, issue to uh, review. And with respect to seniority and stature, the Justice Department now is going to compare the compliance staff to other strategic functions in the company on the basis of seniority, compensation, rank, title, reporting line, and access to key decision makers. They're going to look at the turnover rate uh, for compliance and other control functions and, interestingly, the role of compliance in strategic and business decisions. In other words, did, did compliance have the authority? Did they have the stature such that they could stop, modify, or further scrutinize a business transaction or a deal or an acquisition to address compliance concerns? That, I think, will yield some pretty interesting answers. Um, and uh, obviously, they're going to examine the reporting obligation and how often compliance has access to the board uh, and the audit committee and whether senior management is present at the meeting, obviously the implication being that they should not be uh, in terms of uh, an executive session uh, being scheduled. Okay, so then we turn to the next issue they addressed, which was incentives and discipline. And under this category, the Justice Department is going to examine closely, and this is, uh, I think, very interesting for companies, in terms of your disciplinary procedures and whether they are applied consistently across the organization, and are the procedures commensurate with the violations, meaning are you picking up the important cases, investigating the right cases, or not? Um, and as part of its disciplinary system, a company has to communicate that unethical conduct will not be tolerated and has to have swift consequences, regardless of the position or title of the employee. So here, the Justice Department is going to ask some interesting questions. Who's responsible for making dis disciplinary decisions? How do procedures work for different types of misconduct? And whether the reasons for disciplinary action are communicated to employees? And this is important uh, with regard to the new trend of reporting out compliance uh, investigations and the results and uh, disciplinary uh, actions in terms of uh, how to set forward, how to uh, provide confirmation that there is a deterrent value to this. Um, the other thing as to positive incentives, I thought uh, there were some interesting notes about whether 
The DOJ noted that they are aware that companies have been using positive incentives through promotions, rewards, bonuses for improving a compliance program or demonstrating ethical uh, leadership, and that these that compliance and ethics is now becoming a metric in this area. So finally, we turn to the last topic, which is a set of issues. Does your compliance program work? And here, uh, I want to focus on uh, there are three areas, really. Uh, one is the analysis and remediation of any underlying misconduct, which is sort of the root cause analysis. And uh, I don't intend to really discuss that at great length. Um, there's another discussion here of investigation of misconduct, but I want to go to the uh, the, and that sort of overlaps the investigation with sort of the investigation function discussion that occurred earlier in the guidance. But I want to talk a little bit about continuous improvement, per- periodic testing and review, because this is very important to the Justice Department, that they want to see a compliance program that evolves in, responses to cha- in response to changes in risk that require program adjustments. So a company's business changes over time. Uh, the nature of its customers changes, the law changes, and the company's compliance program cannot be stale. So they've highlighted the importance of a company's culture and the testing of its culture and controls. So this is the issue that I mentioned early on, was the injection of the idea of ethics and now a specific inquiry into whether or not the company is testing its culture, monitoring its culture and controls, and they're going to to uh, examine whether or not the company is surveying, measuring, and monitoring its culture. And this, to me, is perhaps one of the biggest new issues in the guidance because it incorporates what has been uh, a relevant trend for a good period of time. So here. Um, this is perhaps, uh, it's a headline that comes at the end, but it is certainly an important headline and it reinforces the issue that I mentioned early on about the importance of ethics and compliance, not just a compliance program where DOJ has embraced the entire uh, notion of the importance of ethical culture. Well, that's it, and we'll keep following up on, obviously, DOJ pronouncements in this area because it's important. But again, uh, please, I would urge you to read the document, and if there's anything that you need help with, we're here to help. Uh, Please reach out to me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.